You found it. It's the Japan Love Podcast. Coming at you out of the back end of Tokyo, the armpit of Asia. It's me, Matthew, pmbigelow.com. That's also the name of my website, conveniently. That's Matthew, pmbigelow.com for the Japan Web Podcast. And there we go. Hope everything's going well with everybody today. Thank you for choosing the Japan Web Podcast. One of the only outlets out there in the podcast world that gives a full spectrum analysis of the uh, the commercial, the the political, and the international uh, fernanglings um, within the Japan uh, landscape. Not a lot of manga, not a lot of anime, and not a lot of pretend world. Uh, it's the real world, folks. And whatever I'm drinking right now. the same thing that you're drinking all right um lot to cover today big show big show um uh, i was i wasn't sure how to organize this show but now i know what to do of course we always begin the show with a new product just because it's goofy it's dumb and i can you know post the pictures of the product to the website uh, matthewpmbigelow.com and you can uh, check out what i'm about to talk about because it's pretty goofy you can show your friends um, and that way you can uh, ease into everything else. Yakiniku hair clips. Yakiniku, literally fried meat, or what is most conveniently called the Japanese take on the Korean barbecue. Um, lots of thinly strips, uh, strips of meat, and, and beef, pork, chicken, you name it grilled over an open flame at your own table and you eat it on rice you know with some whiskey highballs and a whole bunch of other things um it's very delicious but it's not like um it's not like a barbecue where you get like pulled pork or a giant steak or something like that you order by the um the plate and the person comes over with a bunch of raw raw meat and you grill it yourself and uh, it's not that bad it's actually an amazing way to um eat anyways so the new Yakiniku hair clips from Japan make meat lovers drool. This is coming to us from japantoday.com via Sora News 24. My ultimate hate read. Um, I hate Sora News 24. Uh, and I always make sure to accept the things that I hate in life because maybe they're doing something right. When it comes to thinking, so it begins. When it comes to thinking outside the box in the design world, nobody does things quite like Japan, where you can buy everything from wind and thunder god bras through to cup noodle sneakers. The cup noodle sneakers were featured on the Japan What uh, podcast before this one. Um, now it's time for meat lovers to get a look in with a new set of hair clips that'll make your accessories drawer look like a yakiniku restaurant. Because <laughs> that's what we all want. There are a total of twelve different items to collect, and each one features a clip that looks like a, just like the, that looks just like the tongs you use to place the meat or vegetables on a grill at the restaurant. That's why I hate Sora News Twenty Four. This type of phrasing that looks just like the tongs you use to place the meat. That looks just like the tongs you use to one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, uh, nine words uh, almost that just all short, offering nothing. This time, though, the tongs are used to place the meat and vegetables in your hair. <laughs> or, if you're not so daring, to keep in your place in a book or adorn a bag instead. Um, anyway, so these little clips, they look very realistic. Everybody knows about the, the Japanese fake food outside of restaurants that looks just like the real food. And even on TV shows, they, they have the challenge, is this the real food or the fake food? You never can guess. It's just like it's it's a coin toss, 50-50. You call it heads or tails without, you know, you, you look at it and try to discern because, hey, maybe I'm the guy who understands what real food looks like, but nobody ever does. And these hair clips are uh, no exception. Uh, yeah, you got little fatty pieces of beef and pork and little sesames on top and the marbling of the meat cuts and things like that they also have vegetables shiitake mushrooms and lettuce and stuff like that um and there we go so you can catch some of those uh, pictures of the yakiniku hair clips um i'm not sure if that's a maybe the vegetables are cute the the shiitake mushroom has like a, a design on it the lettuce is kind of interesting, but 
you know, just might pe- people might think you have actual meat in your hair. Like, hey, you stupid idiot, you have meat in your hair. What are you doing? What are you doing with meat in your? Hey, there's a piece of meat on your bag. Oh no, it's just a clip. Oh, I see. <laughs> Anyways, you might want to get one. It could be fun if you're a teenager and you want to, like, attract attention and you're shy. Oh, yes, this is from Japan. It looks like real meat and I put it on my hair. I'm unique. (sighs) We're going to begin the podcast now. Uh, I don't usually do this, but there's a reason. To begin with, the fourth industrial revolution Japan society to create a new society. 5.0. Artificial intelligence will transform the big data collected through the Internet of Things into new wisdom. Society 5.0. A technology-based, human-centered society. industrial revolution will raise our standard of living and solve various challenges we face. It will, for example, free us from the stress of driving, allowing us to safely... All right, so freeing us from the the, the stress of driving, which I agree with. I don't like driving very much in Tokyo. You have to move very slowly. There's extreme corners everywhere. The the intersections, you have to... it's It's a maze everywhere you go. But anyways, um, Fukui Town um, is set to OK Japan's first level four autonomous vehicles. Uh, generally speaking, aside from Tesla, the levels of auton- autonomous cars go from zero, not autonomous, to five, fully autonomous. And this is um, widely known. Tesla just doesn't want to adopt these. Mm, it doesn't automatically in- include itself in these categories because it wants to be its own category. There's, there's a monopolistic element to it, or we're doing our own thing element. We're not GM making an electric car in line with um, business models predecided with other major car makers. If you remember, not a lot of car makers were supportive of Tesla when they first started, so they go on their own way. Um, level four, from my memory, if memory serves me correctly from my time working as an AI uh, you know, conversation instructor at a telecom uh, company in Japan. Um, it means that they can do everything by themselves, but they still require a human driver in the car. That's basically what it means. Um, and the cameras on cars right now are, are very good, as we all know from like the ring networks uh, on your door. It's very good quality with facial recognition. You can hook that into a, um, a network and, uh, you know, distribute it. On my way to the studio today in the armpit of Asia, Shinjuku, Ku, Tokyo, To, Japan, uh, I saw a car equipped with, it was a lot of self-driving kit, a lot of LiDAR, a lot of sensors on it. But the car was like at least 10 or 15 years old. Is this like a startup that got a that's experimenting with a lot of like the off-shelf lidar equipment that's now available? Because if you think about it, this stuff, the generations of 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 self-driving equipment now, it's like five, six, seven years old. The newer stuff is gonna be amaze balls, but the six or seven year old stuff still has a lot of the ability to you know apply the same functionalities into you know a lot of the self-driving capabilities because those capabilities existed seven years ago. Um, so I saw one today coming in, uh, stopped at an intersection. I did take a picture of it um, a couple of times from the back. Uh, I'll make sure to remove any kind of um, telling evidence of who it might belong to. But you can go to, if you want to see what a self-driving, an elderly, an old self-driving car in Tokyo looks like, uh, you can go check it out on the website, matthewpmbigelow.com. I didn't see it driving by itself. It was being piloted by a person. The only time I saw another self-driving car, um, oh, I've seen a few in Tokyo, but the one that comes to mind was on the man-made island of Odaiba. And I'm sure that this, the use case of that car in Odaiba will tie into this report in Fukui Prefecture um, because these level four cars now are, uh, level four autonomy, um, are very um, adaptable in certain specific situations um, like in, uh, for example, in Arizona State, in some of the retirement communities, 
There's not a lot of traffic, not a lot of kids, not a lot of playing. The streets are wide and the maps are very well laid out and the cars can drive relatively slowly and there's a lot of predictability with the elderly, the times they wake up, the times they go to the hospital, all that stuff. So mm, there's a lot of um, safe autonomization that can go on in those types of things. Where it's not really um, doable is like when there's a school nearby combined with a hospital with dense urban and maybe like a lot of construction going on because the, the amount of variability um, increases to the point where even the latest technology can't um, adapt to the variabilities within there because it hasn't been invented yet. So there we go, mapping and stuff like that. Um, then it only takes one car to drive into a, you know, a, a line of kids waiting, you know, laughing, and then they die, and that doesn't look good for your startup company. So this comes to us from Fikui by Midori Kamiwaki. The, the central Japan town of Eiheiji, known for its ancient Zen Buddhist temple in Fukui Prefecture, is said to be the first place in the country to adopt a new type of autonomous self-driving vehicle, hoping to pioneer investment in what could become an important future technology. According to the Transport Ministry, oh, let's see, level four self-driving autonomous vehicles are slated to begin operating in the town of fiscal 2023 through April. Um, autonomous vehicles are expected to become an essential means of transportations in regions of the country where public transport is becoming increasingly scarce. Um, this will tie into other parts of the podcast where we talk about population decline, especially with rural areas where there's not even enough bus drivers sometimes uh, with, um, without enough people to you know, mandate um, a city council to make a bus route and finance the bus sourcing and all of that. You get a few self-driving cars in there and uh, suddenly maybe things are okay. The town, which considers itself at the front for forefront of offering solutions, will aim to identify and solve operational issues for the widespread adoption of driverless technology. Isn't this good writing? There's not like nine words of just nothing. Self-driving automobiles in Japan are categorized from levels one to five, um, and we've already gone through that. Equipped with cameras and sensors that use artificial intelligence, these level three autonomous vehicles can recognize their surroundings. If a person or object is in their path, they slow down or stop and let pedestrians know they are approaching with a verbal warning. Hey, you, idiot, beat it. When reaching the end of their route, they automatically make a U-turn and come to a halt. <clears throat> is there anything else that's worthwhile? Um, there are several issues that need to be addressed if other towns wish to adopt the technology. According to Machi Dukuri Zen Connect Inc., a joint public-private venture operating the vehicles. The town office cannot continue the service if uh, some of the technology stops covering vehicle maintenance and communications expenses. Um, quote, though we want to remain one of the 40 designated areas, it will be difficult without support from the government. Uh, who's this guy? Norifumi Hiramoto from Zen Connect said. Um, so there we go. The, the vehicles are now operating on Saturdays, Sundays, and holidays in the current fiscal year, which ends in like March or something like that. Well, fares for the level three vehicles only cost 100 yen for an adult and 50 yen for a child. So far, users have mainly been tourists. The self-driving vehicles will also not operate during January and February. That's because of snow and the variability that comes at that time of year. This is an important technology for solving society's problems. We will strive to have its usefulness widely recognized, said Shinkato, senior researcher at IST. I didn't cover IST in this report, so if you're interested in IST, it's all capitalized, A-I-S-T. We can expect to see a lot of this type of innovation occurring um, in Japan in the areas where the government sees it's needed first. And again, we can't have this type of stuff going on at the time being in the, the central tech hubs of Shibuya or Fukuoka and things like that, except on a very limited level, um, basically because of all the variabilities involved. It's not set. The, a lot of the laws in Japan are very unique. The intersections are very unique. And um, you can't just have some Indian coder um, transfer their, you know, uh, autonomous driving rules from Bangalore copy and paste that into a Tokyo car and expect it to drive because those people in India will frequently um, sacrifice themselves instead of the car driving into a cow so because of their religion 
And so that's kind of the dangers of some of these things before implementing on a mass scale. It's like the bias is not just about like, hey, this AI doesn't recognize black people. The bias for code goes down, down deep into the deep recesses of human psyche and religion and things like that to the point where, yeah, some person in India might have coded and uploaded to GitHub some sort of thing that says recognize cow, um, avoid cow at all costs. And then uh, a truck full of kids gets driven off the side of a cliff. And in India, they're like, thank God. Thank you, Vishnu or whatever. The cow was saved. But everywhere else in the world, they're like, my God, what are you doing? Not going to talk too much about this today, but speaking of society 5.0 and the fourth industrial revolution, a lot of that is vocabulary that stems back to uh, the World Economic Forum, which I'm kind of getting sick of. I mean, just the amount of content out there about it. And Klaus Schwab. And uh, one thing about the Davos meetup that happened uh, last week was, it's interesting, a lot of the mainstream news will have things like, the five things to take away from Davos. What was talked about? It's like, okay, why do all these people from all over the world connected to the powers that be, whoever they are? Well, we know who they are, you know. It's the general they, the, the big corporations, the big government, the big tech, all that. Why do they need to fly into Davos on private planes to talk to each other about the environment? It's, it's highly suspect, to say the least. Uh, and I think that um, the, the pushback against uh, the World Economic Forum is going very well. There's enough people out there now that don't like them. They're weird. They're having the weird brush smeared all over them where there's like this uh, hint of, of, uh, of stink. And for that type of um, organization to get the heads of finance and heads of state to gather and discuss the, the environment on, on, on tabletop and in front of people at conference with blue screens behind them and broadcast live to YouTube and make a hashtag and get trending on Twitter. If you want all those people to come together, it has to be a very pristine event. And you can't have the weirdos in charge. The weirdos are in charge, but now there's enough of a stink being painted on them that I think that um, they're going to have to find alternative methods um, to pursue their end goals and end games. Uh, this is overall a very good thing, a very positive thing. Uh, it doesn't mean that they're going to go away or that people like me are finally happy, but I am happy that I'm finally getting sick of the amount of content out there. There was a Japanese journalist that did interview Klaus Schwab. This is the thing. Rebel News interviewed um, Mr. Borla, the CEO of Pfizer, when he was running around on the streets of Davos. It got like 20 million views on Twitter. Um, the Japanese journalist, I uh, can't remember her name right now, but she managed to you know, find Klaus Schwab walking around with a black hat on, if that's not indicative of something. Um, and, and just ask him a few questions. And he didn't really answer it. Mr. Borla didn't really answer the questions. 20 million views, 1.5 million views. They went viral. But all, the mainstream media was just like five things to take away from Davos. None of them mentioned any of the alternative media in there gaining tons more traction than them on uh, the Twitter platform. It's just kind of interesting. The alternative media will talk about the media, but the media won't talk about the alternative media. It's like they are forbidden. Uh, you know, I've worked in some newsrooms before, and a lot of the people in the newsrooms won't even know or acknowledge or mention it in the newsroom that something with 20 million views that has like an alternative viewpoint to them is doing very well online. In fact, mysteriously, articles will appear about Twitter, about how it's a negative echo chamber escape in 2023 when it's been a negative echo chamber escape since 2012, maybe, something like that. Anyways, it's just kind of interesting. So that's the end of Japan Society 5.0 for this week. The fourth industrial revolution will enable us to create a new society the end of January. Artificial intelligence transformed the big data collected through the Internet of Things into new wisdom. And you're listening to the Japan What Podcast. Society 5.0, a technology-based, human-centered society. All right, let's move on to the next topic. 
Uh, I got a lot of things to do today. Let's do, let's, since we're talking about the media, let's do stupid gaijin of the week. Stupid gaijin of the week. Stupid gaijin, best G-O-T-W. This, I got two things today. I used to do stupid gaijin of the week to talk about foreigners doing crimes in Japan, but our main source for that, um, Tokyo Reporter, stopped reporting. And then with the COVID and everything, we didn't have the amount of stupid tourists or gaijins coming in and acting like uh, weirdos from hell. But I got a new one. This is uh, I was so this one comes to us from the BBC. It's the it's the Chinese Lunar New Year. And the BBC put out like a short video on BBC World uh, saying the world celebrates the Lunar New Year. And this is like a more more or less a that's a Chinese Vietnamese thing, maybe some Thailand. I've seen it kind of go around and people might go, hey, it's the Lunar New Year. I ran into a Chinese guy the other day outside of a temple in the Shinjuku district and we got to chatting um, because Chinese people can chat. Uh, whereas Japanese people largely cannot. Um, and when he's just talking, hey, it's the new Lunar New Year. I'm like, oh, okay, you're the rabbit. What does that mean? He's like, I don't know. I'm like, yeah, they're not that tasty, though. He's like, no, they're really not. It's that type of conversation. But the BBC World um, included a Japanese festival called the Nebuta Festival in their reel of uh, culture celebrating the Lunar New Year. Now... I've transcribed a lot of BBC news reports over the years. They frequently, they don't, they claim to be woke, but they don't really understand the world outside of their very myopic window onto the world. The Nebuta Festival is a festival, I believe, in Aomori Prefecture that occurs in the summertime, and it can and it features giant floats, and the floats are called Nebuta. It's like a parade. And the Nebuta floats are lit up and they have very unique characteristics. And they're not really floats. You know, people in Japan might get angry if you compared them to floats. But if you didn't know what Nebuta was and you went to Aomori and just saw them, you'd be like, hey, it's a parade with floats. And the floats have like dragons and warriors on them and they're all lit up. And and it just comes from like a very like a festival the I, I, why don't i say this is from the about nebuta festival on nebuta.jp um the epitome of aomori summer the nebuta festival is one of the most famous festivals in japan the main attraction is large colorful and dramatic um human-shaped floats called nebuta nine meters wide seven meters deep and five meters high most of them resembling ancient warlords historical characters and kabuki characters in early days these floats parade through the streets oh they are floats in uh, of aomori with haneto dancers bouncing down the streets to the exciting music of nebuta bayashi bands and um, yeah, the, for some reason, the BBC featured this festival, which had this festival had like a demonstration at like a, a Tokyo Dome January thing. But it's it's obviously not. What I'm trying to say here is, is the BBC is the stupid gaijin of the week. They didn't fact check. They this is what they did. They were like, hey, it's January. Hey, look, it's Asians dancing around some sort of dragon thing. That's Lunar New Year. It's something Chinese. It's like, no. All the comments on the BBC uh, website and the Twitter feed, the official one, was like, in Japanese and Japanese English, like, why are you featuring our festival in your reel here? This is not a, this is not a festival for the Lunar New Year. So they took the tweet down and they reposted a new one and said, an, an issue occurred. That was their apology. So they are stupid gaijin of the week. Stupid gaijin of the week. And I got another one here, and uh, I don't mind calling this uh, this people out. Uh, one thing that a lot of foreigners come to Japan try to do is they try to like um, impose their view on the world onto the, like the Japanese company they're working in. They're like, "Hey, I'm from this. I'm from the real world outside of Japan." And, in your company, you're not doing this or this or this. You should be, you must be doing this and this and this. Meanwhile, everybody in the office is like, we're really busy doing other things beside those things that you're doing. 
And then the, the gaijin pushes and pushes and pushes, and then they just get, you know, tossed out. And this guy um, comes to us from the Japan Times.co.jp. Uh, this is a stupid gaijin of the week, but I also, um, in a way, uh, respect him um, and, and uh, I hold him up in high regard, even though he's this week's stupid gaijin of the week. A father pens a message to his son on the climate crisis. I tried my best. <laughs> oh, can we do this? No, we can't. Um, it's perhaps fitting that Simon Walia and I chat in the news cycle, pumping out headlines on COP27. This comes to us from November 2022, so it's old. Where Japan has nabbed another fossil award for being the world's biggest public financier of oil, gas, and coal projects. Wally, a 44-year-old Welshman who has been in Japan for the better part of two decades, is on his way to becoming one of the international community's foremost voices in the climate conversation. This is all bullshit, by the way, about how great he is. And he's quick to share his thoughts on the annual ECHO meetup, where he says the, quote, developed world's leaders deliver pledges to combat climate change as the situation gets bleaker each year. Nothing at COP is legally binding. The social contract, as far as I can see, has been completely obliterated. A politician's job is not to represent the fossil fuel in animal agricultural companies. Their job is to represent us. As an English teacher in rural Japan, Wally's jaw has forced him to be peripatetic, jumping from contract to contract across the country. What that means is he couldn't hold a job down. I've been there too. In 2018, while teaching at a university in Kumamoto, Wally encouraged the institution to adopt more climate-friendly practices, like putting solar panels on the roof and adding plant-based options to the cafeteria menu. But his requests fell on deaf ears. The request falling on deaf ears in Japan is the Buddha's, Buddha's influence. Everyone's like, who cares about Buddha? He just sat around and eventually everybody left him alone. It's like, yeah, that's the point. You get these noisy foreigners who come in and they're like, you got to do this and you got to do that. And they're just like, oh, really? I'm just going to Buddha the fuck out and you're going to go away and I'm going to continue on my way. It moves on. It goes on. The Extinction Rebellion movement happened around the same time in London. And Wally tried to import the campaign. No! Don't, Wally! Don't! Don't import the Extinction Rebellion into Japan. We don't need this crap culture here. Which uses civil disobedience to spur governments into climate action to his adopted homeland to draw proponents to the climate cause. Quote, But I realize this is just not going to work in Japan. You just can't copy and paste it. So I thought, what am I going to do? Maybe I can write a book and give people the facts. A few more might come on board. No, Wally, no one's going to come on board. Um, published this year, it's, it's called Dear Indy, A Father's Plea for Climate Action. And I'll put a link on it on the website, MatthewPMBigelow.com. Leave him alone if you listen to this and you want to go bother him. Make a podcast. is <laughs> uh, a, a raw and untamed account of the severity of climate change and its cascading effects. Quote, I never thought anyone was going to read it, Wally says. But once I started and got invested in it, I thought, well, I can't really stop now. It's not a really... Um, by the time Dear Indy was completed, clocked in at 250,000 words across 520 pages. Um, I want to... Quote, our societies have been built on growth for thousands of years. It's blindingly obvious you can't have growth forever on a planet with finite resources. Oh, really? You can't? Um, where's the source? Wally declares himself as a glass half full kind of guy, but the book reads more like the angel of optimism and the devil of fatalism embroiled in a constant tug of war. Wally sets forth a solution, which was later published in the Science Open Journal under the title Introducing a Global Carbon Allowance Trading System as an Ecological Alternative to Neoliberalism. All this, okay, car, carbon credit, it's air tax, motherfuckers, air tax. Stop calling it um, carbon credits. Stop calling it CO2 footprint. Just start calling it air tax. It's what it is. Um, so anyways, this guy uh, goes on to... Um, buy or get somehow uh, an old mandarin farm on an island in the in the in the Sato the night Sato inland sea um 
2020, he moved with his wife and son to the, a small island off the coast of Hiroshima Prefecture in the Seto Inland Sea. Living on a renovated mar- Mandarin farm, they practice a life of subsistence farming and veganism. So anyways, while I ultimately respect sitting down, writing a book, and moving to a, a small island in the Seto Inland Sea, which is a beautiful part of the world. Inland seas are the best. The, the, the waves are quiet. They're abundant with fish. It's relatively safe. You can always get the cool breeze, and it's super healthy. I'm not sure if veganism is the way to go. I used to be a vegetarian. I gave it up. And there's no point. You can't solve a climate crisis. It's like saying we have to prevent Jupiter from doing X, Y. You're not going to prevent anything from ever happening, ever, unless you're an engineer or a scientist. You can't just say, hey, hey, world, make a carbon credit scheme. It's not going to work. Stay. It's not stay in your lane because you should have your opinion, but realize that the reason why you're having no effect is because you are completely ineffectual, and that's why you are. You're ineffectual not with, although there is an argument that imposing veganism on children could be child abuse. It's borderline. Um, Unless you really fine-tune the meals. I'm not saying he's an abuser. I'm just saying there's a lot of, you know, hacky vegans out there. I'm not saying he's one of them. But anyways, he is this week's. Stupid Gadget of the Week. Stupid Gadget. S-G-O-T-W. Oh. I realized all that when I started working with engineers. And I'm like, oh, it looks like some people are very good at making the world work. And I'm not one of them. I'm just living off, living off the backs of everyone's efforts. And eventually you should just be grateful that everything works this well, um, even though we're, we're, we're slowly just inch by inch moving into incredible nightmarish scenarios unless we're super careful about the world. But I really like dark synth wave music. I've been uh, listening to a lot of it. I think it's one of the truest forms of modern music. It it gets wide wide repetition. It gets wide recognition across ages, countries, everywhere. The YouTube mixes uh, are amazing. The live ones are great. Um, Apple Music has some good ones, but they're not as good as the YouTube ones for some reason. So I decided to try to make a dark synth wave mix, only using Apple uh, Logic Pro, the 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 DAW, the digital whatever it is, the you know the audio window. I don't know. What does DAW even mean? Yeah, so this is it. But I wanted to originally make it as like a as a bed track for promotion so that's what we're gonna do if you like what we do here at the japan web podcast why not make a donation at paypal.me forward slash japan wut that's paypal.me forward slash japan wut offering insight and perspective we don't have anime we don't have manga we're staring at the world and the world, just like the void Nietzsche talked about, is staring right back at us. And we need your help. At paypal.me forward slash Japan WUT. I, I just recorded this song. We're going to let it play out.
that song is called Saito Revenger, and it's done in the dark dark synth style, the dark synth wave style, that I've come to love and respect as one of the few legitimate forms of modern day music. It has that not necessarily that track, but the genre as a whole has everything you need for wicked tunes without any of the ego that goes on in so much of the modern perspective because it's all video based. Video is kind of ego in my weird corner. Putting the ego in video. This one comes to us from a company I know somewhat well, the Japan News. I usually don't quote them for my own reasons. It's because they're an offshoot of um, the Yomiri, and it's basically just the Yomiri, but in English. I guess there's the Nikkei in English, so why not? The Japanese government set to legalize medical marijuana. (laughs) Getting high, bros. The government is poised. This comes to us on January 25th, 2023. The government is poised to allow the use of medical marijuana to treat patients with intractable diseases, according to the outline of bills revealed on Tuesday. The government has considered submitting the bills, including one to revise the cannabis control law during the current diet session. The proposed revision would also criminalize the use of marijuana. What? In countries including the United States and Britain, medicine made from cannabis plants is used to treat patients with intractable epilepsy and other diseases for which existing drugs are ineffective. Cannabis plants contain a substance that has an intoxicating effect. No shit. Which is one of the reasons why the use of marijuana in medicine is prohibited in Japan. The proposed revision would enable such patients to use drugs made from cannabis plants. Yeah, you can't just have the natural plant. It has to be processed by the pharmaceutical industry, right? On the use of marijuana, there are currently no penalties for, penalties for using it because farmers who cultivate cannabis with permission by prefectural governments might intake substances from the plant during harvesting. Nice loophole, potheads. Marijuana has been dubbed a gateway drug. Okay, so it just goes on. That's why I don't like the Yomiri. It just goes on this random thing at the end instead of like what types of things, what's in the bill. It's just like, hey, let's go on a tangent now because it's, it's, it's journalism. Let's call it a gateway drug now. Marijuana has intoxicating effects. Stupid information. Um. <sighs> It drives me nuts. It's like, hey, can I know more about this? No, you can't. We're going to talk about other things now. (laughs) Why? I don't know. (laughs) No one knows why. (laughs) Cars are fast. Speed is important. Speed has limitations. Shut up and talk about the cars. Okay. Um, Anyways, that's a very interesting thing. I was wondering about this because going back to the Japan Society 5.0, Japan wants to collaborate with Thailand because it's a reasonably stable, you know, place that's pretty awesome. It shares a lot of values. People look relatively the same. Um, and they have, like, you know, similar, you know, ancient rituals and the Buddhism and all that. Um, they want, Japan wanted to help use its expertise in the technology fields to put a lot of that, you know, Japan Society 5.0 into Thailand and Recently, Thailand decriminalized a lot of marijuana uh, usage. And I was wondering, would would that therefore come back to Japan in such a way because of, you know, the back-end channels that go on? And it looks like it might be, probably not for those reasons, but it had been in my mind, like, I wonder if Japan will will go down this road of of, of legalized medical marijuana. I'm not a marijuana user. I used to be when I lived in uh, on Vancouver Island in, in Canada because... Every it's like every, a lot of people smoke a lot of weed there. I'm not really for just being high all the time, though. Um, some people can do it. I personally just couldn't imagine it. But the idea of legalizing mer- medical marijuana is a major step for Japan because it had often been, you know, um, chastised for being, you know, draconian in its in its marijuana laws and things like that. So, anyways, we'll see. We'll see what happens. That's that's we can call that. Let's talk about, we're going to finish up the podcast here. We're running out of time. We'll skip a bunch of stuff and and just go right to war. 
Let's go to war. So let's talk about this as if it's... Is it? Oh, is it? War. The war in Ukraine shouldn't have any effect on most of the world, in my opinion. Maybe some grain, grain prices, maybe some fertilizer, but the amount of... Um, Insanity that we're, the world is being subjected to just because Russia is in the Donbass. Do you ever see a lot of people in the Donbass protesting against Russia on social media? Do you ever see a lot of news reports of like Ukrainians really upset that they might go into and become part of Russia in the Donbass area? Do you ever hear anything about the Azov Battalion and how before 2022 it was frequently referred to as an alt-right, ultra-nationalist um, brigade with, with neo-Nazi and Nazi ties. Those were all common. I have a lot of those screenshots. I might put it up at the website at MatthewPMBigelow.com. In fact, it was a, you couldn't even broadcast them in, in Japan until after the war started, and then suddenly they went from like a banned entity to like, hey, these people are good. And they said, we're sorry we did that. Japan's like, sorry, sorry we did that. Um, I could put that, I, I, anyways. So I don't like this whole idea of the world getting sucked into the black hole that is Ukraine. Um, I don't care. It's that part of the world where it's all land borders. Ukraine, Russia shares a very unique history. I know that once you go into the more of like the the eastern part of Ukraine, it becomes more like, um, you know, Poland and Hungary and things like that in terms of shared values in this current day. And then the more west you go towards Russia, the more people are like, hey, we might want to be part of Russia. There's the religion there. There's the history there. There's a lot of intermingling there. Anyways, I don't see why, because Putin invaded that now, Russia is off the SWIFT system and all the sanctions put on them didn't really work. And now all of our money in, in Japan is worth a lot less uh, for what? For the Donbass region? For the, for the Yadihov region? Uh, Russia is imposing its will and I don't buy it. I don't buy it. I didn't buy any of the COVID nonsense either. So XPM Modi casts doubt on Japan's excessive support for Ukraine. Now, Mori has been known as like a, a gaffer. He makes a lot of gaffes. He's like, meetings with women take too long. And then it becomes, you know, a major thing. And you shouldn't say that out loud. Former Japanese Prime Minister Yoshio Mori, known as gaff-prone veteran politician, on Wednesday urged the government against excessive support for Ukraine saying Russia will not lose its ongoing war in the Eastern European nation. Quote, I wonder why Japan has put in such a big effort to support Ukraine, um, adding that Tokyo had built relations with Moscow. Um, it's unthinkable that Russia would lose the war. If that happened, something harder would happen, said Modi, who was active in strengthening bilateral ties with Russia through talks with Russian President Vladimir Putin. Mori served as Japanese Prime Minister for only about a year in April 2000. Um, after he retired, Mori met with Putin as a special envoy with uh, Pins, uh, Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. And in November, Mori also said at a political gathering in Tokyo that he could not, quote, quite understand why only President Putin has been criticized, while saying the Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky has been making many Europe Ukrainian people suffer. So there we go. Um, So it's nice to see some pushback against it because, um, again, where I'm from in Canada, there's a Ukrainian diaspora in Canada, and the um, the, the the deputy prime minister, uh, Christia Freeland, is of Ukrainian stock, and her father, ha her grandfather, has very unique um, newspaper ties to um, certain um, information efforts during the Second World War. From a side that you don't typically want to support, right? Look into it yourself. I'm just being vague here because I don't want to uh, avoid trouble. 
So there's about 1.5 million Ukrainian stock in Canada. And of course, now that becomes a big thing. So it's kind of weird. And I don't, I'm, you know, I'm from Canada. I don't try to impose my Canadian values on people in, in Japan. I'm f- my, my grandfather's from Norway. I'm not like some, hey, we got to, we got to support Norway, Japan. It's, it's a very strange thing why so many people in the international community got out their Ukrainian flags and just started saying whatever it takes. And now we have more and more um, nations. Germany just decided to say, here's a bunch of tanks, Ukraine, go nuts. And we'll see what happens. I mean, it's. I like the fact that Mr. Morty here is saying, um, guys... This is stupid. And there we go. So is it or is it war? Is it? Oh, is it? This will be the last topic for today. I'm going to have to go through it pretty quickly here. A lot of people um, on my side of the pond here in Japan view the Ukrainian special operation by Russia um, as a pretext to China invading Taiwan. And then China invading Taiwan would inevitably um, involve Japan. Uh, Most of Japan's quite far from Taiwan, but it has a lot of assets, um, a lot of the islands, the Senkaku Islands. China calls them the Zhaoyu Islands. Um... A lot of minor efforts, and a lot of these islands aren't necessarily for people, it's for resources, you know, fishing and things like that. The Japanese exclusive economic zone, the EEZ, or the EEZ, as I like to call it, is massive. And it, it, you look it up on the maps, and you're like, oh my God, Japan is actually very huge. We're just a Thailand nation. You don't have much, much property at all. Then you look at their exclusive economic zone, and you're like, oh my God, you guys are smart. You managed to get it done. You got that much of an exclusive economic zone, and they make use of it. So um, we're going to look at this from the CSIS perspective, not the Canadian spy agency, but the the CSIS perspective. We're going to have to tailor some of the sibilance in today's um, thing here. So let's begin. War. The CSIS stands for the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Um, It's an American think tank based in Washington, D.C. CSIS was founded as the Center for Strategic and International Studies of Georgetown University in 1962. Recently, they released a kind of a white paper or something like that, a paper, a PDF, called The First Battle of the Next War, War Gaming, a Chinese Invasion of Taiwan. Um, and we're going to listen to their YouTube video about this. The, I'm going to post a link to the PDF about this on the website, and it's a very long one. So what I'm going to do is um, I'm going to introduce first the um, senior advisor and Japan chair uh, of the CSIS, Mr. Christopher B. Johnstone, or Johnston, I'm not sure how you say his name, um, and then we'll listen to the video, and then we will look at the summary, uh, the conclusion of the this, this white, I'm calling it a white paper, of the white paper. So, uh, Mr. Johnston is a senior advisor and Japan chair at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Prior to joining CSIS, Mr. Johnstone served in government for 25 years in a variety of senior positions with a focus on U.S. policy towards Japan, toward Japan and the Indo-Pacific. He served twice on the National Security Council and Director for East Asia under President uh, Biden uh, and Director for Japan and Ocean, uh, Oceanian Affairs under President Obama. In the Office of Secretary of Defense, Mr. Johnstone led offices with responsibility for South and Southeast Asia and East Asia. Um, Mr. Johnstone began his career as an intelligence officer in the Central Intelligence Agency, the CIA. A, where he worked on national security issues and he speaks um, fluent Japanese. So as we can see here, there's not a lot of Japan going on in the, in the Japan uh, section of the CSIS. Um, so that's what I wanted to say. We're introducing it as um, Japan's involvement in a war, but in the, the Japan chair for the CSIS isn't Japanese. He's an American spy. 
with a long tenure in uh, the deepest parts of American politics. But this is um, from the YouTube video that we're going to play. And this is kind of a summary uh, involving other people from CSIS of the first battle of the next war, a U.S.-China conflict over Taiwan. About two minutes long. War with China would produce destruction on a scale unseen by the United States since 1945. China continues to strengthen its military and maintains the right to use force against Taiwan. U.S. officials warned that a Chinese invasion is a real possibility and implied that the U.S. would become involved in such a conflict. Although conflict is not inevitable, it is not impossible. CSIS conducted 24 war game iterations of a Chinese invasion of Taiwan. The good news is that Chinese forces were unable to conquer the island and Taiwan endured as an autonomous democracy. The challenges confronting a Chinese invasion are formidable. However, the costs were sobering. In four weeks of fighting, the United States typically lost hundreds of aircraft, two aircraft carriers, and up to two dozen other ships. Bases on Guam were devastated. The Taiwanese economy suffered extensive damage. Japan was often dragged into the war and its bases attacked. China also took terrible losses, often including more than 100 warships and tens of thousands of soldiers killed, wounded, or captured. Such a failure might endanger the Chinese Communist Party's grip on power. The war might last until exhaustion, producing an unstable peace with recurring conflict. The terrifying possibility of nuclear escalation also looms over any war involving two nuclear powers. The costs and risks for both sides strongly argue for avoiding war. Both will need to pursue political and diplomatic strategies that contribute to that end. For the United States and its allies, military deterrence will be a crucial part of that equation. How can that be achieved? The United States should harden bases, work with allies, particularly Japan, for additional basing options, continue to make its forces more survivable, and buy more long-range missiles, particularly anti-ship missiles, because some inventories are critically low. The Taiwanese can adopt the Porcupine strategy, deploy more mobile anti-ship missiles, build a fully manned and highly capable army, and spend less on expensive and vulnerable ships and aircraft. Deterrence is possible and affordable, but it will require planning, some resources, and political will. For the full CSIS report, visit CSIS.org. See, that's not, that's not dark synthwave music right there. So the conclusion of this, um, of this PDF, <laughs> not a white paper, let's just call it a PDF, it says, even if the United States prosecuted the war to, accessible, to a successful conclusion, a narrative of disillusionment might emerge, saying that um, if, if the United States was weakened, Russia might amp up more campaigns or, uh, you know, uh, shit could go downhill is what they're, what they're saying. So I thought that was kind of a unique perspective that you know, some people are talking about, but um, not a lot of people are talking about. And it ties back into Japan because the success of a U.S. campaign would be the basing options, um, which would mean just Japan letting America operate on its territories, which it already is doing in a military fashion. Um, but I think that, you know, Japan's naval... Uh, capabilities would get involved. The, the marine self-defense forces. The the there would be a lot of um, subterfuge going on. We're not talking a lot about the subterfuge. The the submarines that would chase each other um, and, and try to you know bomb each other's ports or down um, you know crucial extenuous supply chain woes by interrupting supply chains, embargoing ports and things like that. Um, all those things aren't even talked about. So the risk to Japan is actually, um, you know, it, 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 there's an add-on there uh, because of Japan's reliance on basically being an import-export country. How do you do that when uh, there's the, the Taiwan Strait is being, you know, occupied by military forces? you start making some other routes, but then the submarines get in there and start bombing all of them. Like, hey, I ordered some, um, some uh, uh, what, what, what do we get? Uh, hey, I, I ordered a sweater from China and it's not here. Sorry, your sweater is now at the bottom of the ocean. And I would go, this war is getting too much. We can't even get sweaters anymore. And I'm kind of cold. So... <laughs> So I said that we're going to leave it there. Um, so that would be... Is it? Oh, is 
ース。Final, final one. Bonus, bonus report. Bonus report. You will eat the bugs. This comes to us on December thirty first. Japan High School serves up edible crickets and meals. So we've been hearing about the edible crickets and meals of the kids for everywhere. It's also in Japan, Tokushima. Japan from Kyoto News. A high school in Western Japan recently served food containing powdered crickets, collaborating with a local startup company that touts consumption of the nutritious and efficiently produced insects. If I knew that my, if this was going to be a permanent thing at any school I'm going to send my kids to, I'm going to pull them from the school. We're not eating crickets. It's, it's like the marijuana is the gateway drug. Crickets is the gateway insect to grubs, to chitin, to exoskeletons, and all of this stuff. No, 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 no. Chicken and beef and fish, all of these things. It's also to remove the culture from the people. They say like, "Hey, we eat insects as a cultural perspective." Yeah, when you're starving, when you're good and you're good to go. Guess what? You don't eat. You don't eat insects. You don't eat whales. Get rid of the whales too. The whales, the whale, whale industry is dumb. Students from Komatsu Shimanishi High School. <laughs> That's funny. If that was in kanji, it'd be easy to read. High school in Tokushima Prefecture worked together with employees from cricket product manufacturer Grillus Inc. Uh, let's protest Grillus Inc. Everyone to cook and serve the insects, which were dried, pulverized, and mixed with other ingredients to be made into croquettes. I don't like looking at bugs, but surprisingly, it tasted good," said a student. "I couldn't tell the difference. Students and staff with an aversion to insects were given the choice of whether to eat the meals or not. Definitely go not. At least they have a choice. You 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 may eat the bugs if you want to. Uh, the school has a food department for students who wish to become chefs. Oh, that's the way to do it. If you refuse to eat the bugs, you don't get your chef certificate. The department focuses. I'm just speculating here. That's my paranoid mind talking. The startup, headed by Takahito Watanabe, an assistant professor at Tokushima University's Graduate School of Technology, Industrial and Social Sciences, not a lot about food there, said the project offering school meals containing powdered crickets was the first of its kind in Japan. Uh, don't eat the bugs, everybody. If there's some things we got to do, don't support the war in Ukraine. Walk away from it. Walk away from COVID and all the madness COVID is. Walk away from the edible crickets and meals. All of these things, we don't have to get involved. We have we have to know about them because there's people like forcing it on us. We just say no. Walk away. I'm gonna go grab a beer. I'm gonna go grab a a, a ramen, a bowl of ramen. There's cricket and vegan ramen, you know. I know, and I'm not going to those places. Never, never ever, because it's not just about trying something out that's funky. All of these people have an agenda, and their agenda is to say everything you're. Hey, hey, you, me, yeah, everything you're doing is wrong. Oh, really? What should I do? Eat bugs, support Ukraine, and wear a mask because there's COVID. And I'm, I'm. This is the the world that's kind of encroaching upon us in terms of these these uh, pushes by government and media. And then I'm saying. No, 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 no. You can go pound sand. I'm going to grab a beer, cook up some steaks, and hang out with my family. And sorry, I don't have any friends. Do you know why I don't have any friends? Because I think the way I do. And I'm also in my 40s. And when you're in your 40s, some people really like having friends, but other people like having MatthewPMBigelow.com. Donate at paypal.me forward slash Japan WUT. And uh, we'll see you on the next one, everybody. Thank you. Goodbye. Don't eat the bugs. Don't eat the bugs. Don't eat the bugs. Don't eat the bugs.